Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone. And welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We are now in our 21st episode of 2022. And I'm coming to you today from snowy Keystone, Colorado. It's uh, kind of interesting to be have a big snowstorm here in the uh, end of May. Uh, but before we kick off things, I'd like to thank our sponsors of Fiber for Breakfast, including our gold sponsors, uh, CHR, excuse me, yeah, CHR Solutions, Millennium, and Plume, and our silver sponsor, Graybar. I hope everyone had a chance to attend our NTIA bead webinar last week, where the fiber broadband policy experts netted out the rules for the $42.45 billion broadband infrastructure program, what that, what that will mean to, for you. We had a great turnout and quite a few really great questions. If you missed it, you can find the replay on the Fiber Broadband Association's website under events. Our Fiber Connect 2022 conference is now less than three weeks away. It's gonna be held in Nashville, June 12th to 15th. The Gaylord and the, and the end of the Gaylord are sold out, but we have some nearby hotels with availability. You know, last year was amazing, but we are already way past last year's registration and content. If you haven't registered, please do so as soon as possible, because we're probably gonna to have to close registration uh, when we reach our capacity. Uh, this is gonna be the biggest and best broadband event in the world this year. So you're not gonna to wanna to miss that. That brings us today's Fiber for Breakfast session. We're gonna be focused on the good, the bad, and the ugly. What we've learned from 30 plus network evaluations. You know, last week at Fiber for Breakfast, we met with Matt Smith, the broadband director for the state of Illinois, and discussed accelerating broadband in Illinois and the NTIA NOFO. This morning, our guests are my old friends, Jack Burton and David Strauss, co-founders of the Broadband Success Partners. Jack and David are, and today's, um, today's topic is the good, the bad, and the ugly, and what we've learned from 30 plus network evaluations. So Jack Burton and Dave Strauss co-founded Broadband Success Partners, a consultancy focused on the technology and operations needs of the digital infrastructure investors and service providers. Jack has over 35 years of industry experience and has authored numerous white papers for clients such as Adtran, Calix, Sienna, Corning, and Visma. Previously, Jack was the Senior Director of System Engineering for Altice USA and Cablevision Systems. His projects include voice over IP, business services, advanced access networks, and optical transport. David has authored um, research-based reports on edge computing and network automation for Sienna, as well as report on managed Wi-Fi for Calix. And previously, David designed and executed the first go-to-market plan for Comcast Business Metro Ethernet services. So welcome, Jack and David. And for our audience, please type in your questions as you go for our Q&A session at the end of um, the presentation. With that, I'll turn it over to David. Great, thanks very much, Gary. Thanks for having us this morning. Um, you've heard the title. Uh, so to set the stage, uh, we thought these questions would, would help to create 
provide context. Uh, so uh, do you work for a service provider who plans to A, upgrade their existing plant, B, expand into new markets, and or C, uh, seek a buyer? Um, and then the second question, which applies to A and B, is will external debt, credit, or grant funding be required? So if you answered yes to uh, part of one and, and two, possibly two, you'll need to tech due diligence or technical due diligence is in your future. And that's something we know something about. So with that, so uh, Gary introduced us. We actually have a, a third uh, person on our team, uh, Jay Rolls, former CTO of Charter Communications. Um, the firm was founded in uh, 2017, and we, we specialize in tech due diligence, as was said, for investors as well as for service providers. Um, we've uh, completed 34 projects of that nature, and uh, many more are, are in the pipeline at the moment. So um, who have we done tech due diligence for and where have we done it? Um, I don't know how many of these names are familiar to you in the audience, but at the top, uh, you generally see uh, private equity firms, infrastructure funds that have hired us to analyze networks. Uh, you actually see a service provider there as well. That's Surf Broadband, where we work closely with the leadership team as they were seeking capital uh, to go from a fixed wireless into a fiber network, actually. Um, and of the 34 uh, projects we've completed, um, the headline, so to speak, that you see on the left and right of, of this map of the United States are the ones that we can tell you about. I don't know how many of them are familiar to you, but gives you a sense of, of the type of work we've done. And as you can see, uh, we've done projects in not all 50 states, but pretty darn close and one in the UK as well. So what have we seen or what have we analyzed? What have we investigated? <coughs> From a technology perspective, it you know, there's been quite a few quite a bit within the world of fiber. However, also HFC and coax, also copper, and also, as I noted a moment ago, fixed wireless. Um, it's really uh, been a range from last mile networks to middle mile to long haul. And geographically, uh, as, as you saw in the earlier slide across the US, but in terms of the types of geography, it's been dense urban environments to very sparse rural ones and you know uh, areas in between. And, and as far as segments are concerned, uh, really the broad swath from residential to SMB to enterprise to wholesale. So how do we go about what we do? Um, we really do a very deep dive investigation of these networks um, and we produce for our clients a red flag report, yellow flag report, really indicating what areas are of concern and what are the recommended steps to remediate those, those problems or those issues. That's phase one. Phase two is we actually go into the field, kick the tires, if you will, inspecting inside and outside plant as well as the knock and, and talking to some of the local techs as well and provide a report around that as well. So now for the main event, what we've seen and in some cases wish we hadn't. Next slide. I'll, let, I'll hand it off to Jack at this point. Uh, thank you, David. Yes, um, we've completed a lot of these investigations and we've seen a lot. Um, so what we're gonna list here uh, on, on the next few slides are some of the things that we've actually seen in some of our investigations um, that might point out a problem or something that needs attention. Um, one of the things that we've seen quite frequently 
um, are networks lacking needed redundancy. Um, in other words, uh, a single point of failure could take down a significant number of customers. <clears throat> we've seen networks where uh, we've gone in looking to examine the network architecture and haven't been able to get adequate system documentation. Uh, in other words, paperwork and uh, you know, computer files showing how the network was designed and built. Sometimes this was because of a, an acquisition where those records weren't forthcoming early on. Sometimes uh, just you know, over the years, some of the old paper records got lost or destroyed or damaged, you know, and uh, we haven't we haven't seen all the paperwork needed to uh, to document the network. We've also seen the opposite. Don't get me wrong. We've seen some networks that are uh, superbly documented and uh, very up to date. Uh, another thing we we've done is we looked at the plant mileage in the files that we get indicating uh, the network design. And sometimes when we add up the plant mileage, it doesn't agree with what the, the people behind the network say it say it should be. Uh, so we'll point that out. Um, we also have seen extensive fiber networks where many of the fibers are low count. Um, perhaps there was a sale on six count fiber cable and that's what they bought. Uh, and you know, when that's the case, what it means is that when you need to expand your network, you're going to have to overbuild yourself um, or use DWDM extensively. Uh, another thing is the backbone of the network, interconnecting your hub sites. Uh, sometimes the capacity of that network is not well documented. It may use CWDM systems with limited capacity or you know, capacity that's full or low bandwidth wavelengths, but um, many times uh, that's not well documented. Uh, this kind of relates a little bit to lacking redundancy. We've seen um, networks that are made up of, uh, you know, many hub sites scattered throughout different cities that might be linked with leased circuits. There's nothing wrong with that. But in many cases, those leased circuits are also completely unprotected. Um, we also see that um, this is particularly the case in many fixed wireless networks, where a network of towers would be connected um, with point-to-point -point radios where um, many towers are sharing a single thread of interconnection. So while you know you may have a, a, a gigabit link between your towers, well, if each one of the towers on that link might consume half a gigabit at, at peak times, and you have four or five of those towers in a daisy chain, um, that could be a problem. Uh, another problem we see a lot is that people have very grandiose construction plans, but they've only employed one construction crew you know, or two construction crews and don't really have other construction contractors standing in the wings. And another problem we found, um, when you build aerial fiber in particular, underground as well, uh, you need to store slack periodically in the network so that if there's a break in the fiber, you can repair it or if you need to access the network mid-span later on, you have enough slack to install a new splice. And of course, if that is not present, well, now instead of one splice to do your repair or do your network augmentation, you're gonna need to do two, um, which adds to the lost budget and certainly adds to the repair time. Network performance. One of the things that we examine is we'll look at the traffic reports 
for the circuits going to the internet. We'll look at the traffic reports for sites between or links between sites. And if we see a diagram come up like the one below, uh, well, that's an immediate red flag because that means the network is at capacity or exceeding capacity. Um, what this does is it causes packet loss, retransmissions. Uh, your customers will not have good performance in a network where this is the case. Uh, we don't see this very often, fortunately. Uh, most providers do a pretty good job of keeping their network utilization below 100%. One thing, though, that we do see frequently are when circuits are installed uh, to multiple internet points, internet drains, uh, or multiple routes between sites, that while they're kept well below 100%, sometimes they're above 50%. And when they're above 50%, that means that if one of those two routes is to fail, then suddenly your protection route is going to be over capacity. So we also look for that and uh, let people know when that's going to happen. And lastly, on this slide, um, IPv4 addresses, the conventional, you know, x.x.x.x .x .x .x, uh, internet addresses that we're all familiar with. Well, um, as many may be aware, there are no more IPv4 addresses uh, being allocated by Aaron. Uh, the only way to get IPv4 addresses is on the open market. Um, you can buy them, you can lease them, uh, but in many cases, uh, a company may not have enough IP addresses in their current inventory for their planned growth. You know, it's it's a pretty sad situation when you only have 100 available IP addresses, but you intend to add 1,000 customers. That's not a good thing. Um, in terms of the equipment, well, uh, we've seen very old equipment, not so much, uh, not so often obsolete PON equipment, but it is out there. There are people still running BPON. Um, one thing we saw was uh, an operator deciding to use indoor ONTs, which are much less expensive than outdoor ONTs, and they decided that uh, they would take, they wanted to get the advantages you have using an outdoor ONT, which lets you service the ONT without the customer being home, uh, lets you build and maintain your network without worrying about service appointments so much, you know, nice goals. Uh, you can do backup power from a, a, back, a battery power supply in the home. Um, nice, again, nice goals, but to do it by using an indoor ONT put into an outdoor enclosure, you know, on the side of the home, well, while it may fit physically, those indoor ONTs do not have the temperature specifications to, to exist in an outdoor environment that, you know, swings well below freezing to over uh, 100 degrees Fahrenheit at times especially inside an enclosure where there's limited ventilation. So again, a very risky thing to do. Uh, we've seen companies using uh, very old voice services platforms. Um, as you can see from the pictures, we've seen some pretty untraceable wiring. One thing we see a lot, um, you know, many companies are running UPS units in their hub sites or in their closets. Uh, we find many of them, the batteries are dead. Uh, they, they are not able to do their job at all because they haven't been maintained. Servers at headquarters, which uh, perform critical functions. Um, 
while they may be protected by a UPS, um, no generator at the site, you know, or even a hookup for a portable. So that's something we've seen. And we've seen uh, many warehouses where the where the um, company may not know exactly what they have or where they have it. Um, we, you know, David may want to comment on this one too. We've seen uh, uh, systems where customer service, well, that job is done by one person. That person uh, has, would have to work very long hours and never take a vacation, I suppose, because uh, that's a, a bad situation. Uh, we've seen, not only in customer service, also in field services, we've seen some of these basically hourly type jobs given exempt or salary job classifications, which while not really a technical problem, this can be a problem with regulators. Um, you know, it's not really right to have hourly uh, positions classified as exempt. And uh, David, you want to comment on the next two? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, thanks, Jack. Yeah, I mean, if, if you know, there are occasions where it's well over a minute before the phone is answered, that's a problem. Uh, that's obviously sending a very poor message to your customers. Um, clearly don't want them to wait. Um, you don't want to ex expend or expend uh, more resource than necessary, but you need to maintain certain metrics. Uh, one is have the speed of answer below below uh, a minute. Um, and then mean time to repair, um, you know, four hours is, is, uh, is, is pretty standard. Um, you know, and we've seen instances where that's considerably greater. In the network operations center, well, I mean, one, one big problem is we've seen companies that have no network operations center. It's not that they farm it out to a, a third party. We've seen co companies that rely on, um, Basically, this is how, you know, back in the 1980s, how cable operators used to do their customer service. They'd have their uh, their call center receive calls and enough people call in, well, there must be an outage. Let's let a technician know. There are companies today still following that model. There are other companies that um, rely on their equipment alarms being received at, by a, an automated system and sending out a pager notification with no manual inter intervention. That may be a good backup to having a network operations center or a, a valid out of hours strategy, but to do that 24 seven is, uh, you know, it can be problematic. Um, we've also seen uh, network operations farmed out to outside providers, nothing wrong with that, but uh, bringing that effort in house has to be a, a very well planned activity. Um, we've seen uh, technical staff where, you know, a very limited number of people have very broad responsibilities. We have systems where the same guy who's repairing ONTs at a customer prem one day uh, might be uh, pulling fiber the next and, uh, you know, working in the central office on another day. Now, again, it depends on the size of the system, but you always want to have somebody to back everybody up. You want to make sure that even if it is a small staff, that those people have a chance to, uh, you know, go on vacation or even if they get sick. Building fiber, of course, uh, we've seen variations in the labor rate. We've seen people paying contractors more than the going rate. We've seen uh, people paying in-house staff um, 
more than the going rate. We've also seen some people paying less. Uh, I didn't mention it here in the slide, but uh, you know, we had uh, one one company where an individual had been there for 14 years, but was basically still making minimum wage, and uh, that's not a great situation. And as I mentioned before, we've seen field workers with exempt job classifications. These are people who have to work out in the weather, late at night, on weekends, and to not pay them overtime for that sort of work is, uh, you know, it's just not right. Yeah, so uh, there you have it. Um, more the bad and the ugly than the good, I guess, but uh, what are the implications of what you've just heard? Um, there's no question that as a service provider, your success in sourcing growth capital for one purpose or another is affected by the quality of the network. So that, that is a very clear implication from our work. Secondly, get ready for a technical evaluation uh, by a potential funding source or by the expert you engage. Because, you know, as we've seen and having done some sell-side engagements, there is a need for an independent audit uh, by, you know, a recognized resource uh, that knows what they're doing, knows what questions to ask, and knows what the right answers are as well. And then thirdly, um, know the evaluation elements. So, you know, as you've seen in the prior slides, the areas that we've looked at and what we've uncovered and discovered. Um, so know that these are the things that, that are going to be looked at and compared to industry standards, uh, CapEx, you know, OpEx, uh, condition of the plant, looking at the network operations center, also OSS, BSS, we didn't really touch upon that too much, but that's often an ask we get. You know, is the organization appropriately structured? Um, our customer and tech support what they should be. We look at the leases, the IRUs, not from a legal perspective, but to ensure that the terms are what they should be. Uh, and then obviously a physical inspection of the, of the system itself and the identification of any red and yellow flags and understanding that, you know, what the remediation steps should be. So those we view as the implications. So there you have it. So Gary, I think we're ready for some questions. I think you must have audited my uh, service provider. <laughs> I recognize that, especially on the customer service side. Uh, okay. The automated system that evidently no human is behind. Um, but uh, no, uh, very interesting. Uh, so let me just jump on the IP uh, v4. Um, so I have a lot, lot of our operators, especially on the utility side, um, are trying to migrate from IP v4 to IPv6. Is that something that is important in your audit, or do you just look for addresses in IPv4? Well, not all not all websites are available in IPv6 at this time. So even if you're well on your way to giving your customers IPv6 addresses and support IPv6 throughout your infrastructure, you still have a tremendous need for IPv4 service today, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so so that that's what we look for. And we, we do look for having an IPv6 plan. Uh, when you know you're at exhaust, there are a couple of things you can do to uh, extend your uh, useful life of your IPv4 addresses, such as carrier-grade network address translation, CGNAT. Yeah, I just uh, had a question that came in, and it says, do you believe carrier-grade NAT's a viable solution for the IPv4 address issue? And you're saying yes, that is? Yes, um, absolutely. It 
for the vast majority of customers, the NATted addresses will work just fine. Some, you know, some applications will have trouble with it. The uh, service provider needs to be able to address those exceptions when they happen. All right, another question is, do you typically see a lot of issues related to environmental conditions like rain, moisture, excessive heat and cold? Any quick migration avoidance comments to those? Uh, well, we have seen some sites without adequate um, HVAC. Um, you know, cabinets can be either uncontrolled or environmentally controlled. Uh, it really depends on the equipment you're using. If your equipment is hardened for uncontrolled environments, uh, then you should be all right. And there were not long ago you saw something that was frozen, didn't you, Jack? Uh, yeah, we saw a uh, a uh, um, splitter cabinet where water had gotten in and frozen at the bottom. And while it didn't affect the fiber, because fiber is very, very resilient, uh, the unused fibers that were sitting in the bottom of the of the cabinet, which, by the way, is also something you shouldn't do. Any unused fiber jumper should be parked uh, in a uh, um, in a connector sleeve. <clears throat> but with these fibers that were sitting at the bottom were sitting in the water that had frozen. And if one of those potential customers wanted to be hooked up, they couldn't be. So one of the comments says is that they noticed that one of uh, the first slides I referenced to work done with uh, CBRE. Can you provide any further information on your work? Yeah, that was CBRE Caledon out of Canada. And uh, they uh, acquired WANRAC or invested in WANRAC, which... Uh, as some in the audience may be aware, serves the uh, the education market, but they were looking for an investment and got it from uh, CBRE Caledon to expand into the enterprise space. Hey, one of the this is a good question is in the on the ugly side, is there are certain areas of the country that that's more prevalent? Where it's uglier than other parts of the country? Yeah, is it, is it regionally or is it just by operator? Uh, I don't know, Jack. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I really don't don't think that that's limited to a, a geography. I think you could say that there are certain types of service providers which are more prone to have ugliness in their network than others. In particular, um, you know, I don't want to I don't want to hang an, an industry out to dry here because that wouldn't be good. But I will say that the private operators, uh, those that are not traversing public rights of way with their plant. They're just serving um, individual residential communities. That's where I've seen some of the worst. But on the other hand, one of the best we've seen was one of those type of providers as well. All right, last question from my buddy Greg is, um, is micro-trenching discounted you know, like from an asset valuation from property trench assets? We report on that if that technique is used. One thing we really want to see is how deep is the micro trench. Um, if it's shallow, that that's a red flag. Um, you know, another thing is some sometimes the micro trench technique is used right at where the um, curb meets the road. This is an area where where things are getting dug up all the time, and that's another area to uh, to probably avoid if you can. Um, oh. It's not so much that the technique of, of digging narrow trenches itself is bad, 
It's that when when it's done, it's typically also done along with other incorrect techniques. Well, hey, Jack and David, really appreciate so much. Thanks for sharing your insights and battle scars from your long history of these technical evaluations. So I hope this uh, session's been useful for our audience and help them know what to look for. So I hope everybody's getting prepared so then when they get their audits. So thank you guys. And thanks everyone for joining us today. I look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. We're gonna be discussing the middle mile and what you don't know can hurt you with Rick Talbot, the principal analyst at ACG Research. So you're not gonna to wanna to miss that. Um, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you guys next Wednesday.